Well, good evening, LCM. Good evening. It is so good to be back here with you guys for week four. We are entering the week where we're going to get to discuss about conflict resolution. If we'll go ahead and put up the first slide. See, normally, as you would have been preparing for week four, you would have watched two messages. And one entitled Red and Green Should Never Be Seen. And the other message is Restoration Ultimatum. These are two very important uh, sermons that you would have watched on the way in. And so we're going to start off by just helping you and reminding you of what these sermons are all about. Are you guys having a good time in our date nights? Yeah. Amen. We brought you chocolates this evening. Yeah, don't say we never did anything That's for right. you. Look, uh, since you didn't get a chance to listen to Red and Green Should Never Be Seen, we, we just wanted to share a text with you and talk through that a little bit. And, uh, well, we'll see where the evening takes us. You guys, y'all have a certain look about you. You're waiting for week five, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, don't you worry. Week five will be here before you know it. There's a reason week four comes before week five. Yeah. Jen, why don't you pick up for us in uh, Leviticus 14.33. Okay. Leviticus 14.33 through 44. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when you enter the land of Canaan, which I am giving you as your possession, and I put a spreading mold in a house in that land, the owner of the house must go and tell the priest, I have seen something that looks like defiling mold in my house. The priest is to order the house to be emptied before he goes in to examine the mold so that nothing in the house will be pronounced unclean. After this, the priest is to go in and inspect the house. He is to examine the mold on the walls and if it has greenish or reddish depressions that appear to be deeper than the surface of the walls, I'm sorry. The, <laughs> the priest shall go out to, of the doorway of the house and close it up for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest shall return to inspect the house. If the mold has spread on the walls, he is to order that the contaminated stone to be torn out and thrown into an unclean place outside the town. He must have all the wall, inside walls of the house scraped and the material that is scraped off dumped into an unclean place outside the town. Then they are to take other stones to replace these and take new clay and plaster the house. If the defiling mold reappears in the house after the stones have been torn out and if the house scraped and plastered, the priest is to go and examine it and the mold has spread in the house. It is a persistent defiling mold that the, and, uh, the house is unclean. Wow, so obviously we're not talking about just mold. And yet, this passage has profound biblical implications. Those that think that there are chronology problems between the Gospels of Matthew and the Gospel of John simply don't understand the Levitical law. We're not going to get into those issues here. We want to stay focused on exactly what you should hear in this. Do you see all of those bolded words, spreading mold, house to be empty, deeper than the surface, contaminated stones to be torn out inside the walls, scraped, reappears in the house, houses unclean? There are issues that affect our homes, and they are exactly like a spreading mold. Everybody can be getting sick, and you don't even know why except I'm talking about spiritually sick. 
So it says house to be emptied. That's something spiritually that you have to go in and take assessment and empty out any area, examine any area that could be there and clean. It says deeper than the surface. I'm sure that you know what we're talking about. But men, we're almost never in a discussion about what is actually being discussed. Yeah, why did only one guy say yes? I, okay, it's always deeper than the surface. Yeah, contaminated stones to be torn out. These are those building blocks that maybe uh, were contaminated that you, like he's, he's talking about, they're deeper, they're, they're more inside of you than you think that they are, and those stones have to be torn out. Wow. Uh, we're not even in week five yet. <laughs> the uh, contaminated <laughs> stones do have to be torn out, but also the inside of the house has to be scraped. Yeah. The walls have to be scraped. You know, that, that might mean that some of these issues are not so easy to get at, that they're harder to remove. It says reappears in the house. How many times in your life have you thought that you've dealt with something and then you find it seeping out into certain areas and you thought it was gone? Yeah. The thing is, is this is about the average Israeli house. In fact, it's the average Israeli house somewhere between the 14th and the 15th century BC. And yet, in the Newer Testament, it is also true of God's house. The message is all about a spreading mold that was infecting God's house. And so Jesus had the house cleared, and when it reappeared, he ordered the house torn down, which happened in 70 AD. Now, we say that because if God will tear down his own house over a persistent spreading mold, then we need to know that the result of not dealing with things in our own life will be that your whole house will be torn down. We want you to understand that that's not the whole of the Bible story. In listening to the second message, it would have been part of that homework, Restoration Ultimatum. You would have understood that the major point is that we are to remain daily in him because it is God's desire to renew, not to tear down. So to see this clearly, let's go to Matthew chapter 19 and we'll look at verse 28. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you at the renewal of all things, when the son of man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, notice in this passage, it begins with Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you. Well, coming from your pastors, we tell you tonight, truly, we tell you that at the renewal of all things, when the son of man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It's giving an imperative to understand God's desire to bring renewal to all things. Say all things. All things. The goal is the renewal of all things for Israel and for all of the earth and your marriage. And you notice here that he, Jesus, sits on the throne in right judgment. And the conclusion is also that we must do the same. 
sitting in right judgment based on the throne of God so that our homes can be renewed along with the rest of the earth. Anybody want a renewed home? Yeah. yeah. You know, as I hear the pastors talking and reminding us of red and green should never be seen, I hear Pastor Matt talking to us about the renewal of all things in the sermon called Restoration Ultimatum. I have to tell you, uh, it reminds me of a story of amazing uh, mold-coveredness in my own life that had to be renewed. It was actually our wedding day. Uh-oh. Didn't take us long to start to realize that there was some uh, mold growing inside our walls and some things that have to be scraped away. And I'm just going to be really, really honest with you. I'm so excited that we're being recorded, that this is going to go to everyone. These are such exciting moments for us to to be this vulnerable with you. But on our wedding day, we have a two o'clock wedding in the afternoon because we're such poor kids. We're like, we just can't feed everybody. So let's do it at 2 p.m. They could eat lunch and eat dinner. It'll be okay. (laughs) And it's hard for me to explain to you uh, the excitement that I had about being done with the actual wedding ceremony. (laughs) Being actually done with the wedding ceremony and uh, being able to not only the first time to connect with my wife, but the first time to connect with anybody ever. I mean, you can imagine. You can imagine how just enthralled I was, thrilled, excited about that which was to come as we got into our uh, shaving cream covered car, (laughs) mustard under the handles, you know, our friends treated us so well. As we got into the car, you can imagine the very first place that I was excited about going. Well... We were leaving the, the church, and I was in my white wedding dress, and we're heading towards... Beautiful. Stunning. <laughs> Gorgeous. <laughs> we're heading towards uh, the apartment, and all I have in my head is this fearful thought going to the apartment. I had, in the wedding planning, you know how it is, ladies, every lady starts telling you their story. Their story about their honeymoon, their story about their wedding day, and all these things. And I have this kind friend uh, that was telling me her experiences. We got to the apartment. He just ripped off my dress, and everything was over in two minutes. Well, I was hoping for something... I was hoping for something a little different, and but I had this fearful thought in my head, like, I, I really want something better than that. Um, um, what can I do? What can we do? What can, we, can we slow it down? Can we just take a minute? Can we? These are the things that was, were horrible, horrible. <laughs> so if you're catching this. <laughs> this is already going on. The fears begin to overwhelm my wife as we get into our little 1992 Saturn SL. Sport. Little, little, little sporty Saturn uh, with a five-speed. Yeah. I'm just glad that GM picked the right planet to yeah. make the car. <laughs> so my wife begins, my newly, like, two-hour-old wife is now sharing with me these great fears that she has. Right. And so... Uh, I became fearful that I'm already like not going in the right direction with my wife. 
So what I decided to do was we went to... Babe, 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 babe. Um, how, we got gift cards. We got gift cards at, at the reception, and we can finally go and pick up our, our a camera. We can, go, we can go pick up a camera because we're going to go to our honeymoon tomorrow in Florida, and we'll have it. We'll make memories, and yeah, it will be Yeah, it's not late. that kind of camera, so don't you worry about that. <laughs> I was going to say, Pastor, this is, this is this, a church meeting. This, this, <laughs> this is just this is a church meeting. Far too many looks there that they were like, yeah. yes, oh, no. Oh, I was so no. selfish. Shame so on selfish. all of you who yeah. thought So selfish. So selfish. So, so we go. We leave the church, which I think uh, David and Jen also got married at. Yeah, and by the way, same church building. We change. left. We went to the car wash. <laughs> and then we went to the mall. On our honeymoon night. <laughs> it was terrible. No, I did change. I did change. We, so, so there was a, a, a quick change that happened, and we, we literally went to the mall because I was too afraid to tell my wife anything other than what I thought that she wanted to hear. Right. And I was too damn self-reliant. I shouldn't have said that on camera. It's a biblical word. You were too spiff-located. Spiff-located. The, the thought was condemned. Sorry. Yeah, it wasn't them that said it. It was me. That's the funny part. <laughs> You'll have me. no idea how we have to work with him about his vocabulary. I know. It's all coming out. Yeah. Apparently, I didn't work through all this as much as I thought I had. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm too self-reliant to to actually stop and get in the word and figure out what to do or even pray. So we just literally go to the mall and uh, we go shopping for a video camera that we can take with us to Disney World, which is where we're leaving for in the morning. Right, right. And so we head back and and, uh, go through all the steps of getting all these things because I was only thinking about my comfort. Like what was good for me? What would make me feel good in this? Not even thinking about my sweet husband either. <laughs> well, and the, it highlights a problem that, yeah. that I've had my whole life was that I was trying to be a people pleaser. Yes. See, I thought the best thing that I could do for my wife was just to be sweet, just yeah. to be kind. I was trying to be kind to her, yeah. but the truth is, is I was just, uh, didn't have the integrity, didn't have the strength to be able to stand up and not just yield to being a people pleaser in that moment. Yeah. So in these things, we saw some of our flaws now, like we can go back and look at those things. But in that moment, that was definitely where mold could start growing in our marriage. Yeah, my passive and timid nature, literally the most special night Mm -hmm. of my entire life to that point. Was delayed. Had kept myself pure physically, Mm -hmm. and my indifference and passivity caused an indifference in me that I, instead of leading my wife, I literally was being led by her thoughts and her emotions, and I didn't have enough about me to be able to lead her better than that. See, that's you want to talk about some mold that had to be scraped out of our life, and it started literally the first day and the first hour and the first minute that we left the church, but we didn't see these things that were mold issues in us. We literally, again, we shared it with you guys last week, we're literally proud of ourselves thinking that we were living up to some standard, but the standard just wasn't the word at all. Yeah. Well, the saying goes, 
First comes love, then comes marriage, then come the Piros with a baby carriage. <laughs> so to illustrate this uh, topic of mold growing inside your home as we scraped away and torn out, we want to share with you a story about one of the uh, births of our third child. Yes. So this actually happened 16 years ago yesterday. So right on time. So I was pregnant with Chloe. We had moved here. Um, the only people we knew were Eric and Jen. So when it came time and, um, the plan was whenever I went into labor, if I went into labor, because I always had to be induced, but just if I went into labor, Eric and Jen would help us with the kids. And so the day before yesterday was Eric's birthday. So the 27th was Eric's birthday. And that night I started having contractions and it was two weeks before my due date. And so I went to Matt and I said, Hey, I think I might be in labor. And he's like, you're not in labor. <laughs> you don't go into labor. I'm like, no, I'm in labor. No, I'm convinced. And he's like, no, you're not. So a couple hours pass. I go back. I'm like, no, I'm really in labor. No, no, I'm, I'm really, really in labor. And, um, and, you know, I was sure that I was right. Well, I was sure that she wasn't. <laughs> I, I'd become uh, uh, pretty conditioned to give in to uh, a certain uh, insecurity and fear that husbands can have. And that is uh, fear that a, a wife is going to... Uh, overreact and you're going to follow that overreaction and make a mistake in leadership altogether. And uh, so as she began to tell me she's in labor, I'm like, look, we've been through this two times already. Uh, you're not losing your breath or more, you know, they're more than two and a half minutes apart. Uh, we're pros at this, man. And the other two, there had to be some in induction in this. So no, 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 I wasn't paying attention to it at all. So I was still very, very convinced and I became very fearful. And um, so I said, well, I'm going to call the doctor. And I'm going to get the doctor on my side. And then that will prove to him that I'm in labor. And so on my own, I called the doctor. And the doctor was like, truthfully, the doctor was like, well, maybe you could be in labor. You, you could come if you want to get checked. And I took that as green light. Doctor says we need to go get checked. <laughs> and he's like, no, man, it's Eric's birthday. We're not disturbing them tonight. You're not. You it were, was in the evening. It was of in the Eric's evening. Birthday. Yeah. And he's like, You're not in labor. We're not calling Jen at nine o'clock at night to come watch our kids. This is ridiculous. <laughs> so here I stand, you know. I myself obviously have never been through the actual birthing process in my body, but I've watched her go through it, and I'm wrestling between this uh, validity from the doctor or what I see and sense. And I began to waver between two opinions. And I wasn't sure if I was to go or not to go. And, you know, it finally came down to, I know I'm going to make a great decision right now. So that we have to deserve, serve any, any uh, activity in anyone else's home. Uh, Cass, you just get in the car and go, baby. Call me. <laughs> Call me if anything progresses, developed, and then we'll by, work this all by out. By myself. Mm. By myself. So... I was pretty hot. I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to do it. That fine. I got it. I got it. I can take care of this. So I get in the car, and I slam the door, and I'm, I'm driving my pregnant, contracted self. <laughs> no, it wouldn't fit by that point. <laughs> I'm driving myself to the hospital, and I am mad. 
I, I am feeling very entitled that he should believe me. He should be coming with me. This should look a lot different. This is, this is not what I expected for the birth of our child. <laughs> so I hear her leave. I can immediately feel the disapproval of God descend upon me. <laughs> Matt, that was a dumb decision. <laughs> I was making it out of a position of being double-minded, but now I'm at a point where I, I'm stuck in neutral. Mm. And being neutral is equal to being paralyzed in a situation. Yeah. I didn't know where to go forward. Would I retract and back up? Do I now just rearrange everything and you know run after the car and go get her or you know drop the kids off? And I, w I was actually ignoring what the spirit was showing me the whole time, but particularly in this moment, that I had made a bad decision and I needed to get out of neutral to begin to restore right order in it. So I get to the hospital and I'm mad. And so um, I called Jen. Because <laughs> the, the doctor wasn't valid enough. Now I'm going to get my friend to help me out. And she's like, what's up? And I'm like, oh, you know, just uh, going to the hospital. Oh, you are, you in labor? I'm like, yeah, but um, Matt's at home. Just threw him right underneath the bus. <laughs> and she's like, what? And I'm like, can you come up here and sit with me? Because I'm by myself. <laughs> and so like a good friend, Jen leaves her birthday husband and comes to the hospital with me. And we're sitting there staring at each other. And she's like, let, let, me, call, let me call my friend. Let me encourage him. <laughs> so Jen calls. She said, um... Matt, what are you doing? <laughs> I said, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm at home. I'm, I'm watching the kids. Is everything okay with Cass? You need to come up here now. Come be with your wife. She's in labor. I'll take care of the kids. Don't, don't worry. It'll all be fine. Well, internally, I was having all of these justifications come up. I'm like, look, man, uh, first and foremost, just be transparent. I was saying in my own heart and mind, Cass needs to be proven wrong. Watch, she's not going to go in labor. She's going to come back home. And all this will work out. I'll be proven to be right in this matter. But truth is, I didn't want to be corrected. I didn't want it to be evident that I had stalled in neutral because of a bad decision that originated from an insecurity and fear. I didn't want to face up to my true condition. And with ministry partners and really a, a lifetime sister that I have, she's loving me enough to give me correction that would align me back in right order. Just repent, repent and admit it and get up to the hospital and then God can begin to work right order in me. And so he comes up there and he's being sweet and Matt, you know, when, when the Lord convicts him about something and he hit in his heart, he turns so quickly and I'm just not that person. I am stubborn and I like to hold on to things. No, that's not true. You are <laughs> loving in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. In that moment, I was stubborn and I didn't want to let go. And so he walks in that room and instead of just being like letting water pour on that situation and just it being in a glorious moment, I give him the cold shoulder. I'm like, I'm fine. No, I'm fine. It's all good. It's good. Would you like some water, baby? No, I'm good. I'm good. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Eventually, we had the baby, and everything was good, and we love each other. Amen. But <laughs> it was an uh, embarrassing moment for us. Truth be told, this entire time, 
there, there was one aspect that was at work contributing to it all. I was more focused on me than I was on God. And I made the situation awkward from start to finish. What should be the celebration of our third child, the third child that we would name Chloe because her name means fresh grass. She was a representation of God doing something new in our lives, having been planted here in Sugarland, Texas. What should have been a celebration of that event, it now became awkward and truth be told, moldy that God had to scrape and tear out. Yeah, and, and my big error from the very beginning was the manipulation to try to get my own way, you know, and we do that. We use our little heart-turning superpowers to try to manipulate our husbands and thinking that we're completely justified in it. Mm. I did that. Well, you weren't alone. <laughs> God began to take care of it. Yeah, all three couples on the stage, we're pretty flawed people, and our flaws are different from one another. When Pastor Sutherland and his wife's fleshly attributes interact with one another, it, it, it looks docile. Um, when Pastor Piro and his wife's fleshly attributes interact with each other, it, it looks somewhat volatile, uh, double-minded. Well, the Stevens... Um, we're a little different. We're... But in keeping with first experiences, first, first, first experiences, uh, the year that I was ordained, uh, so this is back when the dinosaurs were, were roaming <laughs> the earth, we were so excited to be doing ministry. And uh, there was an apartment complex called the Manchester. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was an 1,800-square-foot apartment. It would be the biggest house I'd lived in in my entire life. I was, I was so excited, and it, was, it had two floors. And we're sitting ready to sign the lease for this, and there's a giant warning that says, um, we do not permit water beds. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought, well, it's a good thing rules are for other people that doesn't apply we're, to us we're not bound by <laughs> other people's fears and insecurities and uh we we happened to be in that waterbed after a spirit-led meeting where people were filled with the holy ghost it was incredible i mean our home was full of the presence of god my wife had had gone to school that day. She had gone to work that day. She had come home. She had cleaned the house that day. And now we had a typical Stevens meeting that went till 2.30 in the morning. And uh, problem is, is everybody's just now left the house. <laughs> and uh, she's got to be up in the morning at, at 6. I also have to be up in the morning at 6. And I'm like, it's no problem. There are hours <laughs> left in this evening and uh, and I'm I'm also pretty excited about what I think should be happening like now, and uh, the insatiable nature of of my flesh drew us into to places that, well, they became volatile and explosive pretty quickly. Well, in my argumentative nature, could give all the reasons why. 
this should not be taking place and I can go to sleep because I love to argue. I can make a convincing argument in my mind and uh, which, you know, I expressed. Look, uh, almost all fights in some way relate uh, to sex and marriage. Um, well, I said almost because I'm speaking to a big group here. In our life, all fights <laughs> relate to sex. So um, I, I am in this waterbed. I have uh, worked as much of my magic as I possibly can. An argument has ensued. And uh, so now Jennifer has stood up and uh, turned on the light and said, we're going to talk about this now. Because all my sleepiness went away once my argumentative and judgmental nature came out. Because I'm, uh, I'm a pretty passive person until I'm not. So I said, we are not going to talk about this now. You missed your window. I'm going to punish her. And my stubbornness and hateful, rageful self, um, I'm fighting and yelling and screaming at this point. No, we're going to fight about this right now. So somewhere between aggression and indifference. Indifference in that I'm trying to punish her. Like, I wanted you. You didn't want me. So now I'm going to show you I don't need you. Uh, she turns on the light. And uh, when she does, I said, Jennifer, turn off that light. In my stubbornness, I said, no. Not no, but probably hell no. We're going to talk about this. Jen, turn off that light now because more force fixes everything. <laughs> and in my stubborn nature, I'm like, you can't make me. To which I thought, I bet I can. <laughs> so, completely naked, in a waterbed, on a second floor, I reached up and grabbed the light fixture for the fan and tore it from the ceiling, breaking the glass fixture in my hand, which did a couple things. It immediately turned off the light. But it also severely lacerated my right hand and spread glass all over a waterbed. So in the middle of being naked, in the dark, standing on a waterbed and bleeding profusely to where we can feel it run, I can feel it running down my arm and dripping on the bed, the single worst thing happened that I could think of at that moment. I started taking full-blown swings at him. <laughs> now, it's hard to imagine now. It happened. <laughs> but I was once younger and a little more athletic. And had it not been for those agile reflexes, I think my own wife would have knocked me out. But. I am naked and bleeding and trying to dodge full-blown haymakers in the dark while also trying not to step on shards of glass on a waterbed on the second floor. And when I thought things couldn't get any worse... My despairing nature decided to leave the room. And I thought, well, he can just deal with whatever he's going to deal with up there. He's, he's done it to himself. And so... 
I slammed the door and went downstairs. Now, did I tell you the house was 1,800 square feet? She's now a long ways away. And at first, I'm happy because I'm indifferent. I'm like, that's right. You need to get out. And then I started to wrestle with the fact that I am bleeding. I can't step in any direction or I'm going to pop this bed that I shouldn't have. And she is now downstairs. And I became highly skeptical. Skeptical that I could say or do anything that would bring her back. And I was crying, overwhelmed with the thought, this is what ministry looks like. This is what we give her all when we're doing all these things. And I can't do any more. Or is the Lord going to ask, you know, expect all this of me? I'm not capable. You know, all the little excuses, all the little fears coming out in me, all the despairing thoughts coming out of me. At this time in my life, I've been born again. I've been spirit filled. I'm in ministry. But prior to that, it was not unusual to have guns involved in my life in illegal ways. It was not unusual to be in physical combat with other human beings. It was not unusual to have highly tense situations. But I had never found a more difficult moment than what would have to come next. Jen, honey, um, sweetheart. What? Um, Jen, could you come back up here? No. Baby. Please? And I came back up. Now, we're telling you these stories, and the title of tonight is Conflict Resolution. So you might be thinking, well, of course, Conflict Resolution. The thing that you may not have realized is this is nowhere near what conflict resolution is about. No. Not even close. We want to show you something. In week one, we identified for you our navel traits. You also have those fleshly characteristics that you've identified. In week one, I identified that I'm insatiable. That's where our fight started. Two, that I'm aggressive. That's how it escalated. Three, that I'm stubborn. That's why I broke the light. That I can then be indifferent. That's why I didn't care when she walked out of the room. That I am skeptical, which is why I didn't believe she'd come back even if I asked her. For me, I identified immediately that my argument in nature created something that um, was horrific. Uh, my, judge, my judgmental nature. I had already justified in my mind that I was right. Uh, my hateful, fearful, rageful self had created something that was epically horrible. Everything that I actually fear, I was creating. Uh, my stubborn nature, you know, was just adding more to the situation instead of being that peacemaker that I know I'm called to be. I'm just going to sit and be stubborn and stay in this because I've justified it. Now, um, we didn't know. <laughs> like, we didn't know what Abigail and the ball traits were. Yeah. We had no idea. Nobody taught us that. 
if you are coming tonight expecting us to help you solve issues like the fight you just heard the Stevens had, something's wrong with you. You have been asleep for week one, asleep for week two, and asleep for week three. We're asking you to wake up as the pastors explain. In week one, we showed you our list of the ball traits as well. And the way that it relates to the story that we told about the birth of Chloe is it began with my fearful cowardice. I was deeply insecure that if anybody or my wife had a better idea than I did, then that would make me invalid as a leader of my home. Well, that led to in that situation of being double-minded and trying to, to please two sides of the coin, both situations of staying home, watching the kids, not interrupting anyone, and my wife being in labor and needing to go to the hospital. Like perpetuated with being in neutral and paralyzed in that situation and making no decision, which is the worst decision of all. Well, then wanting to then defend myself for having demonstrated the previous three traits. And when my defense doesn't work, being more self-reliant, self-conscious rather than God-conscious. I just could have easily seen that these things could have died immediately, repented, and begin to restore shalom. Yeah, and for me, my pride and my fearfulness worked in combination. I was sure that I was right. I was sure that he was the one that was wrong, and my fear of the situation was was coming out of me in a nasty, nasty way, trying to manipulate my husband and create a situation where he was the evil one and I was the poor victim. Um, I had a jealous and entitled nature. This is how this should look, and I am going to make it look this way. Why aren't you going along with me? I was offended at him and not willing to forgive him even when he was acting in his Abigail nature. And we didn't know this back then either. But you see how these traits are coming out because it's been a part of me since the beginning? It was coming out even then. These, these nasty things, this unforgiving, will not relent, the avoiding difficulty. This was me tossing it to Jen. You fix the problem for me because I'm just not, I'm, I'm too mad to even deal with it. These nasty things have to be crucified for us, but this is a week one problem. Speaking of week one problems, in our case, it was a literal day one problem. Day one. But the week one problems were showing that this is not even rising yet to the place where we could call it a need of conflict resolution. These were things that are clearly listed on our Nabal traits. I was a coward. I didn't know how to lead my wife. I didn't know how to say the things that needed to be said and said, really, we could do this later. We, this is the most important thing that we have right now. I was too afraid. I was too cowardly to lead her through her fears. See, I was self-reliant. I didn't have the word at all in my thoughts. Didn't even ask the Lord what I should do. I was too busy being a people pleaser to actually find out what would please the Lord about the situation. I had a passive, timid, apathetic response that says, fine, and while I was there, I can assure you that I was not in the best mood. I was indifferent. Let's let, fine, let's do this as I'm drug around the mall. Those are a week one issue. They were moldy, terrible, awful issues within me, 
but they were clearly and would be clearly cleared up through the use of putting Nabal to death. Yeah, because the fear that consumed me, the fear of, um, of what could happen, not even in a, this is an amazing man, but I was allowing my fears to overcome me in this, sec, in this way. Uh, selfish. I wanted what I wanted. I wanted to make sure that I had everything, all my ducks in a row and everything in, in, the, in, uh, in place. Stubborn. I can be very stubborn, headstrong about my plans and my expectations. And if it doesn't happen that way, then I'll let you know and be very upset. Uh, lazy, only thinking of my comfort, not my precious husband, not, not anything that's really important to the Lord, important to our l new life, uh, but just lazy because I liked my comfort. And hating correction, that could be seen because I, even if he would have tried to correct me at that point in my life, uh, I surely wouldn't have seen it as love. I would have flipped it around and I would have taken it as something completely different. But all that we would have needed to do is, is take care of our own sinful nature in that moment, and things would have been completely different. See, the stories that we shared with you are about week one. It's a, it's a revisiting of what should be handled in a week one situation. When you think about week two, a week two kind of summary that we had from there, these teachings are designed to be progressive in their building blocks. If you're taking care of Abigail and Nabal, then that will eliminate most of the needs for in, uh, in, in argumentative kind of situations. The vast majority is just us acting in the flesh, and the truth is, is yes, it is that simple. See, these progressive building blocks, if we had just put off Nabal and put on Abigail, if, if as a husband, each of us would commit to being like God as the groom, and the wife would look to emulate exactly what the church does, then none of the scenarios that you see that we've discussed with you would have ever gotten off the ground. If we start with Abigail and Nabal and then we start to function the way a, hu a husband should by initiating, the way a wife should by responding rightly, none of these situations here on this stage would have even remotely taken place. The next progressive step is week three with the flow of shalom. In that week, we learn how the home is to be structured and how shalom flows. That all authority starts with the father and then flows downhill to a husband, then to the wife, and then to the children. Look, none of the horrific stories that you heard about the fights were about, they were not centered around God's will. They were navel-driven fights. Well, if this week is called conflict resolution... And it's not about these kind of conflicts, then what is conflict resolution actually about? What we're actually here to talk to you about tonight are the inevitable conflicts that arise while you're working in your godly design, while you're working towards God's purposes, but you don't know how to do them so you are at an impasse or you don't know what to do see conflict resolution is degraded through time especially in this church we bear responsibility for that and you bear responsibility for that conflict resolution is not well we're acting like Nabal we haven't put on Abigail we know the order of a home but we're not doing it what else you got 
Those of you that have said, well, I don't think marriage counseling works for us. Of course it does. You don't do the work. If you want these to work rightly, week one flows into week two. Week two flows into week three. Which should beg the question, what are we talking about conflict now for? We're talking about the right kind of conflict. The conflict that comes while you are doing God's will. These lessons are interconnected. I'd like to show you that slide so we can do it quickly. In Psalm 34, 14, it says, Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. You learned that in week one. At no point in any of our stories did we turn from evil and work to do good. Right. At no point did we seek peace and pursue it. Nope. So this is not a magic pill. This is a week one issue. Yeah. What's Proverbs 18 say? The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. At no point did we consider the long-term fruit of the words we spoke or didn't speak. These are week one and two issues. And, and the thing is, nothing that comes afterward would fix that if you didn't do it from week one. Nothing we could teach you tonight will do something for your navel nature that you don't do when you commit to kill it. Matthew 10, 11 through 13. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. I'm going to touch on something for just a second that is, uh, it's very deceptive. We were ordained. We had just prayed for people to get spirit-filled in our home. We just had the most godly couples in the world at our house. Charlie and Joe were there. They were not gone for a few hours. I mean, Charlie's always got up a little earlier than I do, so they may have been gone a little while, but not long. So what on earth does Matthew 10 have to do with this? You learned in week three that God will not work in a home that does not get into shalom. So, but wait a minute, people were being spirit-filled. Y'all were ordained. You were in ministry. You know where God was not at work? In that situation for those few hours. Yeah. And when it becomes a pattern, it will shut down your whole life and your whole ministry. Yeah. Yeah. And the problem with not recognizing the seriousness of that is you allow a moment in time to start to become hours in time, weeks in time, and you disqualify yourself from being used by God. The difference in that situation for us is we stayed up the rest of the night and we talked and we prayed about things and we discussed things and we also came together and were united for the next day. We didn't just talk. <laughs> we did that a little. <laughs> we prayed. And we didn't just pray. Well, amen. There are other teachings that we're going to get on to this evening. See, church, the very first thing that we have to grab hold of tonight is that even when we are in our godly design and functioning within Shalom, there will be conflicts inside of your life. And those conflicts can prevent you from achieving God's purpose if you do not resolve them the right way and from his very throne room. Now, those conflicts need to be set in real contrast to the ones that we described. Yeah. 
None of those conflicts were about God's will. None of those conflicts yeah. uh, would have survived the week one teaching, except nobody gave us the week one teaching. Right. None of them would have survived the week two teaching, but we didn't have it. None of them would have survived the week three teaching, but we didn't have it. The conflicts that we're going to talk to you about tonight are the inevitable result of two people trying to hear from God and do his will. We are not talking to you tonight about those that are committed to stay like Nabal and want some other magic pill to resolve it. Well, I just think they talk too much about that Abigail and Nabal stuff. It doesn't work for me. You keep telling yourself that while you slide towards hell. Well, I just don't get what they're talking about with marriage symbolism. That's not how my home works. Well, you just stick with that idea as you do nothing for God for the rest of your life. I, I think they make too much out of shalom. Well, you can continue to think that, but we spent a couple of decades without ever seeing a divorce. And every marriage that we did stuck. Okay, I, I, I want to tune you in to the seriousness of what we are talking about tonight. If you are having the kind of conflicts we described, you need to repeat week one. You need to repeat week two. You need to repeat week three. Because what we're talking to you about tonight is a whole nother level. And to be honest, some in this room are nowhere near ready for it. But some of you are. And, and we want the whole room to rise to a new level of ministry. Amen. It should be an encouraging thing for you to understand that you already have what you need for what most of us walked into the room to think about conflict resolution would be about. You have exactly what you need. We've been teaching it to you for weeks. We've already told it to you. You've already been trying to experience it. You have what you need for those. We're actually going to take this to another level tonight. When you think about 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, I'm going to read this to you because it's addressing the husband. So I'm going to get to read this scripture. Husbands. In the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and, somebody say and, and. not only the weaker partner, but she is also and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Man, what if you take a look at this verse and you're not thinking about a week one kind of situation where you're just trying to get over being Nabal? What if you look at this verse and you're not just thinking about a week two kind of situation? What if you're beyond and you are in shalom, but you are now in a situation where husbands, you actually feel that you should be doing one thing and your wife feels that you should be doing something else and they both are scripturally based. They both have validity. This is not a choice between good and bad because the truth is, is that is no choice. Well, we're trying to figure out between what is righteous and what is wicked. If you are still trying to decide, then you're on the wrong end of this spectrum. What if it's between something that both appears to be good in this perspective and, say and with me, and has validity from a different perspective? What if one of you is looking with one scripture and another is looking from another and you are trying to figure out in this moment, now let's talk to the husbands. You have to be considerate as you live with your wife. You have to treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gifts of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. You've already, you've already tried to deal with Nabal as best you can. You're, you're working in your right function and you're trying to initiate as the husband. You're working in Shalom and your wife 
will in fact follow your leadership. Now what are you doing inside of your heart to raise the level of our conflict resolution to what we're trying to point you to towards tonight? Consider the picture with the angels. They are there moving back and forth between the throne of God and you. And you sincerely believe that you are on to God's will. But your spouse sincerely believes they're on to God's will and the two don't match. What are the angels supposed to do? See, that situation is a conflict that must be resolved. And it's not based on one of you cursing at the other one. It's based on two people that are trying with all of their heart to accomplish God's will in a situation. And they have dramatically different ideas about what God's will is. And they can't both be right. Well, this leads us to uh, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23. I'll read this to you as well. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So we clearly see in this passage is that you have someone that is going about doing God's will, drawing near to him at the temple. And it's not highlighting if that person has something against someone else. It's that you bring into, or what's brought into remembrance, is someone else has something against you. And so it's first setting that gift down, going and being reconciled with them, and then coming back and continuing to pursue that will of God. See, look, when there is a conflict about actually doing the will of the Lord, we have a means to work through it rightly in order to accomplish God's will. That's exactly what this verse is laying out, the right way to go about accomplishing God's will. Tonight's teaching is going to assume that you're equally committed to God's will, not making each other miserable. That you are equally committed to embracing fully the Abigail design not working hard to accentuate your spouse's navel trait. Tonight's teaching is about conflicts that arise while you're trying to accomplish something for the Lord. Is there anybody in here that thinks that could be a fun conversation to have? Yes. Let's do our first group activity. So you had homework and uh, in your homework, Oh, that's the wrong slide, my friend. There you go. Uh, your group activity is to review the three areas that you identified in your homework from last week and evaluate whether they're about actually accomplishing God's will or just controlling your neighbor, neighbor nature. Do you remember that you were to write down at the end and discuss three areas of broken shalom in your house that you were trying to fix. When you look back at them, are they actually about accomplishing God's will? Or are they really just masking more navel issues that you haven't put to death? We want you to go back through them and look at that. Ask yourself if the areas you identified are really about a husband initiating and a wife responding like the church, or if it's just more of you trying to function in some way other than the Bible, and that's what you're talking about. Ask yourself if they're truly shalom issues at all or just undealt with navel issues from week one. We think what you will find is that you got some of them right 
and some of them you didn't because we're not connecting the teachings properly. You think that you move on from week one and now we're talking about week two. You move on from week two and now you're talking about week three. And praise God, finally we get to week four and we can talk about how to resolve our differences. We've been talking about it since the moment that you showed up here. Yeah. And we want you to examine those connections in what you wrote last week. All right, all right. So we are so excited that you're having fruitful conversations. That means that, uh, that the way that we've begun was helpful to start a conversation. Uh, we're going to pray and uh, start to work through the rest of our material, which is is every bit as good, I, I promise that it is. I wanted to encourage each of you. We love that you're here. We love that this is what you're working on. Part of the hammering that you're hearing is this will never work right if applied incorrectly. Week one has to flow into week two, which has to flow into week three. You cannot suddenly get a magical conflict resolution that will do away with your need to kill Nabal. And uh, once you start to see the way that they connect, then you're going to find out that you still have some conflicts, but they're about the right kind of things. And the conversations in your home are dominated by a pursuit of the will of God and no longer dominated over whether you're going to eat Taco Bell or Chinese food tonight and breaking down into nasty fights over that and what it results in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are the arbiter and the originator of all that is right. From you flows every answer, and you have demonstrated them perfectly in the life of your son, the Messiah. It is our great joy to reciprocate what we see him initiating. Lord, we love your will. We want our lives to be about your will. And when there must be conflict, Lord, we even want that to be about your will. Because we know, Lord, that your will must be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Church, we don't want this to be difficult. We don't want this to be mystical about what you're supposed to be doing. We want this to be very, very clear for you. So we have a slide here, and we're going to encourage you to, to consider a few stories that you are very familiar with. First of all, consider David and Abigail from 1 Samuel 25. It's the very passage that we based our Abigail and Nabal traits on. That David and Abigail, this is a very interesting story if you're looking at it from the perspective of conflict resolution. Uh, David rightly discerned that Nabal needed to die. Everybody look at me for just a second. He rightly discerned that Nabal needed to die. It is a wrong interpretation of scripture to presume that David missed this, that he didn't get it. He got it right that Nabal must die. Abigail rightly discerned that it should not be by David's hand that it was done. You have two right 
you have two people discerning certain things correctly, and one is able to see it and finds that they were both correct on this, but Abigail had the right perspective that it shouldn't be done by David's hand. Now, how do we know that David was right in the fact that Nabal should die? Because God killed Nabal. God did it for him. He had the right perspective, and it had to be included with Abigail's perspective so that the right part of God's will was accomplished. Do you see how that is? That's proper conflict resolution. Let us present to you another one. Think about Paul and Agabus in Acts chapter 21. See, everyone that was involved in this, everyone who was concerned, they heard the same message from Agabus. Whoever is the owner of this belt, right? He begins to speak to them and has a prophetic voice. And everyone hears what the prophetic voice says. The conflict arose in what the next step was to take to accomplish God's will. Some were saying, Paul, do not go there because of the prophecy. Others were saying, as Paul himself was saying, I must go because of this prophecy. Wow. They all heard the same word. The conflict was figuring out what to do next. And the entirety of the group came to the right conclusion because they rightly went through a proper conflict resolution method. See, they were able to do this. And the, and the last story here that just to, to help you understand it in a total way is Mordecai and Esther. If you look at the conversation between Mordecai and Esther, in Esther chapter 4, you see that Mordecai begins by a discussion by saying, hey, tell Esther what's going on, that, that Haman has paid a price so that he can destroy the Jews. Esther responds and says, hey, I haven't been before the king in the last 30 days. It could cost me my life. He says, hey, by the way, you don't think, don't think that you'll escape. She says, please pray for me so that I can do this right. There is a back and forth conversation between two people who loved the Lord. I don't think that you should read this, that Esther was uh, doubting and was not going to follow and be submissive to Mordecai because she proved it throughout the, throughout the entirety of the story. But what's happening here is two people going back and forth in a proper conflict resolution so that the will of God can be accomplished here on the earth. Needless to say, none of these, uh, none of these conflicts sound like our waterbed story. And that's because Nabal was not playing an active, obvious role. It was not that they were all in the flesh. It's that they were working very hard to be in the spirit and still didn't know the right way to carry it out. Yeah. And they had different opinions among themselves about it while they were seeking God's will. Those are the kind of conflicts that it's necessary that you have, that it's good that you have. And in fact, as we're sitting here thinking about it, Jennifer and I have had many, many conflicts about missions. If you go, you could be martyred immediately. Then what about the rest of God's will for your life? That's, a, that's, a, that's not a Nabal trait. It's only a Nabal trait if she's so fearful she's biting her nails she couldn't consider that it might be God's will to go. On the other hand of it, other side of it, I'm sitting on the other side of the coin going, what happens to them if I don't go? How long do we wait? When will be the right time? It's never a question of whether she'll follow me, never a question of whether we'll do God's will. The question is, how best do we do God's will? What does the timing look like? Do we go and risk immediate death? Or 
Do we stay and wait for a better time? Do we really have God's timing in this situation? Those are the kind of conflicts that are inevitable when people are committed to doing God's will. Proverbs 1.5 is a scripture that uh, Cassidy and I have been gleaning from for the, for the past couple of years and watching it take place in our own lives. As I read this to you, we're going to share just some of our personal experience with it and let you know how it's come alive. Yeah. So Proverbs 1.5 says, Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance. You know, as you experience um, you yada with God, you experience him and you walk through things with him, he sharpens your discernment. With every interaction you have with the Lord, your discernment gets better and better because you realize, oh, I made a mistake there. Okay, let me not do it that way or whatever. You, you grow in your discernment as you grow with God. But you come to a place where you start to rely on your own discernment. Oh, I've been in this situation before. I've been pregnant before. I couldn't possibly be in labor. Could I be in labor? I, I couldn't possibly be manipulating. Could, whatever it is, you rely on your own discernment because you think you, you have that. You've been there before. But the word says to let the discerning get guidance. It's not that your discernment is bad. It's that you have to add the Lord's guidance to it in order for it to be effective and right. Proverbs also says, do not lean on your own discernment. You cannot lean so heavily on that. You disqualify God's guidance in you. He's giving you those experiences. He's sharpening your discernment to bring you to a place where you then turn and you say, Lord, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? Yeah, having that, that attitude of your heart that says, Lord, what do you think about this? It will guarantee that he's going to take your discernment and show you how to rightly apply it. Many, many times, and, and I'm glad to say that both me and my wife, we've walked through that process of dealing with our flesh, that we know the right marriage symbolism, that we know the right flow of shalom, and now we're standing at a point where we both know we've heard from God, but in the initial analysis, it looks like it's in conflict. We now need God to show us how to carry it out and how to execute it. One of the more uh, memories that's burned in my mind that demonstrate this is that we were at a home group meeting, and as we begin worship, Cassidy is getting words for everyone in the room. And particularly, I wasn't paying close attention. I thought she was doodling and just taking notes. But as we got to the point where it was time to respond, she leans over and she says, I have a word for everyone in this room. And I understood at that point, Lord, what do I do with this? And what the Lord clearly showed me was what she has is right, but at this moment is not the right time for that to be executed and delivered to the people. And as I was looking for the Lord's guidance with this discernment, he let us know exactly what that perfect timing was. And just as a missileer would turn the keys and launch a nuclear button, I was in that position I got the, 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 the command codes from my commander-in-chief, and I pushed that button at the right time, and it launched and effectively hit every target in the room of people's hearts. So conflict resolution is not that somebody's yielding to Nabal, and we need to fix that. that. That was week one. Conflict resolution is not whether our lives will be about the will of God and responding to him. That was week two. Conflict resolution is not about who is going to lead in this scenario. 
But what conflict resolution is about is when you know what God wants, but you're not sure about how to do it. It is timing issues. It is uh, people seeing different facets of something God wants to do. And they both, you don't know how they fit together in the moment. And you can be impassioned about that, but not in sin about it. Listen to the way 1 Corinthians says this. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. I just want to share, too, um, like my husband said, when you know that you are you know, working out of Abigail, you know that you're in shalom with your husband and right order, you're going you're gonna to do what the Lord says. The Lord actually creates you, like, as a wife to be an asset. And so the things that you're sharing sure. with your husband and the words that you're giving him, it's a different perspective. And it actually makes you as a couple more well-rounded, more focused on the Lord and what he's wanting to do in your life. And so it, it, it's almost like an honor. You finally have gotten through all these things. The Lord has shown you something to be able to reveal and to share with your husband so that you both can take it to the Lord and, dis, in, and see where it, it, it lies, where, the, where God's heart lies. It's, it's a, a beautiful thing. Uh, there, there are a lot of examples of the application of this passage. Um, a few that, that I'd just like to mention off the top of my head. When we see a sharp dispute breaks out between Paul and Barnabas, we want to know who is right. Okay? When, uh, when you were listening to our stories, you probably determined who you thought was right or more right in each story. Okay? That's a normal, sinful behavior. The point, the point of the Paul and Barnabas dispute is that they both had facets of God's will that needed to be done. John yes. Mark needed to be raised up, yeah. and Paul needed to take Silas on the next journey. And we want our conflict to be about the will of God, and here's what happens. When Jennifer sees something in the Word, she hears something from the Spirit, she's at that golden altar of incense that I don't see, it conflicts with the way I think that it should go. I've learned to pause. I've learned to think about that because the truth is, is we're not arguing about who's going to lead. That's not in question. We're not arguing about what our lives are going to be about. We are not trying to stay Nabal. None of those things are a part of the discussion, so they're not being thought about. What we are looking for is to go, Okay, there are differences between us. What is God favoring, though? Yeah. And this yes. allows us to work together. And it is not some kind of hierarchy, caveman-like scenario where you just do it because I said so. That would be go revisit week one. When you, when you start to get this right, you find out that the Lord has the other half of what you need. Matthew and Cassidy said that we needed to seek wisdom from the Lord. Do you know how he'll give it to you most of the time? Through the covenant partner he put with you. Yeah. We have to learn to do that. Getting rid of Nabal, embracing Abigail, learning how a husband and wife work together and staying in the flow of Shalom provides the opportunity for you to learn to resolve the right kind of conflicts in the right way. Amen. Somebody say, that's so good. That's so good. Look, we're going to turn to Psalm 25 right now, and we're going to begin to talk about soul submission. See, in the, in the context of what we're saying, though, we're talking about 
things that are already setting up a scenario that you are trying to accomplish God's will and we, that your soul is in a proper alignment with him. This is where we're starting the process as we begin in Psalm 25 and where we're going to begin in verse 1. Verse 1 says, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. But this is actually not a right translation. The better translation is, In you, Lord my God, I lift up my soul. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Yeah, in, in my Bible, the, the title that I've handwritten in for Psalm 25 is Soul Submission. We've got to get our mind, we've got to get our will, we've got to get our emotions, and then we're going to submit them to the Lord because we are trying with all of our might to do what the Lord is telling us. We're just not sure what sh we should be thinking. What sh we're not sure what we should be feeling in that moment. Let me, let me clue you in just very briefly on where this teaching came for our church at LCM. See, this came to us because a woman's husband had just committed adultery against her. This wasn't about the person, the woman being in the ball traits. This was about a husband who committed adultery. And the question that arose in the woman's heart was, do I stay with him because it is Christ's will for me to stay with him and forgive or to leave him and therefore accomplish God's will and do exactly as God is instructing me to do? Do you feel the depth of that kind of a decision? Do you feel the importance of that kind of decision? This is not something that we're taking lightly, that you're just going again, trying to decide between good and evil. You have two perspectives that a woman is trying to hear from the Lord. She is trying to dial in and accomplish God's will in her life in that moment, in that span of time. And that's where this teaching came from. More than just, again, you're not just in week one. You, you've, you've, the husband is leading and the wife is responding. There's a right flow of shalom. You've gotten those things in order. You're in right alignment. And you're saying, Lord, I don't know what to do. I begin now by submitting my soul to you. Yeah, this isn't a question. Uh, she would start at forgiveness. Because if you don't do step one of getting your heart right with the Lord and doing what is necessary to forgive then anything else will just bounce off of, of your soil that you're trying to cultivate for the Lord. And um, so the question that she was asking is, do I still live with an unfaithful man? And she's having to depend uh, on what is right in the word and also just what the Lord is directing her to do. So as we're talking about soul submission, this is, this is at least one version of when you're not sure what you must do. You're not sure of what you have to think. You're not sure of what you should be feeling. So you begin by offering your soul to the Lord so that you might accomplish His will. Perhaps it's manifest in your life and you would go to Psalm 25. If you and your wife, instead of just not having any idea, you and your wife may have differing ideas, both spiritually sound, both scripturally based, but differing ideas that are not in right alignment here. And you both have to begin this process by offering your very soul, your thoughts, your will, your emotions to the Lord himself. Let's continue with verse 4 and 5. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. 
Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. When reading these two verses, we're going to take a look at a comparison between divine direction as opposed to carnal compulsion. See, carnal compulsion is a confidence based on your own determination of how God's will should be carried out. So now once having heard from God about what his will is, there is this assumption of now I see exactly. Thank you, Lord, for giving me that download. Thank you for giving me that revelation of what, what's going to be accomplished. I got the plan of how I'm going to do it for you. And I'm going to race ahead in this compulsory manner to try and help the Lord out with what he divinely revealed to us. But verse 4 tells us a different, a different story here. It says, show me your ways. That word show is yada. It's one of my favorite Hebrew words. Experience God. Experience his ways. Teach me your paths is lamad. It means to train by experience. Isn't that a different perspective than, okay, Lord, I got it. I got the end goal, so I'm just going to go ahead and do what I want to do. It's like, no, Lord, you showed me the end goal. Now show me the path. Show me the first step and the next step and the next step, and I'm going to depend on you for every step after that. You are giving him your hand and saying, guide me in this. Verse 6. I was going to say that you hear the cry in all of these steps of, Lord, lead me in this. I'm submitting my soul to you. And through these three facets, I need you to guide me to exactly how to carry out your will. And nowhere in these steps is it an obvious navel trait that is at play. Nowhere in these steps is somebody refusing to do what they were designed for in God's will. Nowhere in these steps are we challenging the order of the home. And yet, we're still not completely sure that we know the next step to take. And that causes conflict. Yeah. Verse 6. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, O Lord, are good. So what's happening here? The psalmist has lifted up his mind, will, and emotions before the Lord. He's literally submitted him to the, to the throne of God. He has asked the Lord to teach him, to guide him, to show him what to do. And suddenly, he finds himself asking for mercy. Okay? That's not because he was an obvious sin. He's reflecting on how merciful and loving the Lord is. And in doing so... If you're on the opposite side of a discussion about God's will with your spouse and you are thinking about all of the mercy the Lord has given you, scriptures like James 2.13 are probably flooding to you for your mercy triumphs over your judgment. You're becoming less entrenched in what you thought you knew was right and more willing to consider that there, your spouse may have something you don't have. Yeah. And even if they don't, You've been showed, how many times have you gotten something wrong with a right intention and the Lord blessed you anyway? See, what's happening in this verse is you're remembering your own track record with the Lord. That ought not cause arrogance. That actually ought to cause you to have mercy swell up in your heart and be thinking more deeply about what your spouse is saying. They may still be wrong, but it's the right way to approach the subject. 
Continuing in verse 8, it says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways, and he guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. Yeah, do you hear how immediately after you've been asking for mercy, you've considered what you are, you are reminded of God's good and upright character, that he is going to help you, that as you are submitting your soul to him and asking for divine direction and asking for mercy here, you begin to be reminded of how good God is. How many times he's come through and say how he has never let you down. He's never treated you wrong. You start remembering, and it's almost like you have another gates of praise kind of experience here where you're good and upright as the Lord. Oh, because he's good, he is going to instruct me. He is going to help me here. Yes, remembering all those times. Everybody say all. All. All those times that you were, you thought that you were right about something, and you were clearly wrong. You had no idea. You did not see. Uh, these type of moments should humble your heart. These type of moments should make you quickly reflect on your Nabal traits. Not go digging in your purse, not go digging in your back pockets or your bags, but quickly go, wait, grab that Nabal trait, look at it, and quickly be humble for the next instruction. And the humbling here as you're moving forward. Good and upright is the Lord. See, it reminds you of how good he is. You've, 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 you're now confident that you have dealt with Nabal. You now are walking in the right place, and you're walking in the right alignment with the Lord, and he is able to guide you. He, this humbling of your soul is what allowed you to be guided into what is right and for him to teach you his ways. I mean, this is the process that God is showing us here. It's, it's not that you walked into this with a Nabal trait. It is that in reflecting on God's goodness, in reflecting on your own track record, you're recognizing that there may be something at play that you don't realize. Mm -hmm. There may be mold beneath the surface driving you that you didn't realize. Was, it, you weren't trying to be out of God's will. You put to death everything that you knew was there. But you have to consider that you could be wrong about your position. And your spouse could be right. Yeah. yeah. That's good. That's humility. Verse 10 says, All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful toward those who keep the demands of his covenant. You know, this, this verse is preceded by that call for humility. And humility lets us see the true heart of God and then be able to keep the demands of God's covenant, his ketuvah. I can't help but think of Jesus in Gethsemane. And the conclusion is, not my will, but your will be done, Father. And there was no Nabal nature within Jesus. But there was an establishment of humility wanting to do the will of, God, of, of the Father. And the Father would show it to him. But he had to come to that place of crying out those very words. Okay, so we all know that God's demands are optional, right? No. No, wake up. God's demands are not optional. They must be kept. And submitting your soul to him will lead to knowing how to carry out his will. When your soul is submitted to the Lord, all of those thoughts and those emotions are hushed, and you can actually hear his will. Look, the, the major point of this scripture is that God is loving and faithful to those who are faithful to his covenant. In he, in those that are faithful to submit their souls to him, looking for 
his will to be carried out through them. We want you to understand, when you have rightly worked through weeks one through three correctly, then using Psalm 25 will work for 99% of the cases. Psalm 25 will help you identify influences that weren't malicious, but also weren't God, so you can come to his perfect next step. So we have described this sometimes as conventional warfare because this is the normal spiritual warfare that surrounds all of life's kingdom decisions. They are battles over time that repeat and also allow for adjustments that can be made over time. We've, uh, we, we've jokingly referred to Psalm 4 as the nuclear option, right? Only in reference to the scenarios that have been made in a very finite period of time. Let me repeat that. Finite period of time, and they have huge implications and consequences related to them. I want to admit that was an extraordinary mistake. We never should have called them conventional warfare and uh, nuclear warfare. That was my note many years ago. It meant something different to me than all the years following with people just reading the note. They're like, okay, well, we're still fighting. And when we're fighting and it's nasty, then we pull out Psalm 25. When we're fighting and it's really nasty, we pull out Psalm 4. No, that misses the entire point of the teaching. Psalm 25 is when you have time to make a decision. It's normal spiritual battles, and you're just trying to figure out the best way to accomplish God's will. Psalm 4 had more to do with truncated time. Uh, other pressures are on you, and you, you cannot lift up your soul for three weeks over the issue. Uh, anybody out there frustrated sometimes with how long it takes their spouse to come to a decision? Do not raise your hands. <laughs> that was a test. I am sometimes frustrated with your spouses about how long it takes to come to a decision. This is not to mean that Psalm 25 is when you want to kill your wife and Psalm 4 is when you already have. <laughs> Those are week one issues, okay? Yes. The whole process is about the conflicts that arise when you're trying to make godly decisions in his spirit. Psalm 25 is when you have a reasonable amount of time to do so. Psalm 4 is when that time is shortened and the pressures are very high. We'd like to give you a few examples of that to help you visualize what we're talking about. Yeah, to give you an example, uh, when we first moved here, I had on a Friday afternoon, uh, Actually, it was before we moved here. It was as we were in the process of moving here. It was in May of 2014, and I got offered two jobs within one hour of each other. I got offered a job to be a campus pastor at a mega church in Louisiana, and I got offered a job here in town with a firm to help hire pastors. I had This was a Friday afternoon, and I had to let them both have an answer by Monday morning. There was a pressure in the timing that was involved in this. I couldn't wait forever. I couldn't drag it out. There was ex they were expecting an answer over the weekend. And so I had a time pressure that was there. And a Psalm 4 process is what helped me to, to figure out and to discern God's will about these two very specific things and about God's plan for our life. 
also, so my father died um, last Christmas, and so we headed down to Louisiana um, in the middle of the night to help my mom make start making preparations for the funeral. And in the middle of those things fell a Sunday morning service that we felt like we should really be at, and we had to pray, and we knew that that was a time-sensitive case, and we had to seek the Lord and find out his will for those moments, and we ended up coming back for those moments. So I had a um, similar thing with my father happen a couple of years ago. He fell and broke his neck, and this was during a Monday night foundations meeting, and I brought it to, to Matt, and I'm trying not to panic. I'm trying not to be that manipulative woman that I was many years ago, but I'm walking in my Abigail, and I present it to my husband, and I'm waiting for his decision, but it's time sensitive because... I'm his only daughter, and they need me, and all of these pressures, and we prayed about it, and we sought the counsel of our friends, and we worked through Psalm 4, and we waited several days until the Lord told us to move, and then I went to see him, and for the time period that the Lord set, and then I came back, and the Lord blessed it, because in that process, me waiting and being there for the time that I was there, he worked restoration of a relationship. My dad and I had been estranged for a couple of years. And because of that, and because we followed the Lord's guidance, it brought restoration. And now I have a relationship with my father again. Yeah. Uh, something parallel as it relates to the, in the medical nature of a Psalm 4 situation is uh, whenever your child has ingested an entire bottle of Robitussin. Or you think they may have. There's an empty bottle. There's you know, evidence on their shirt, but you don't know how much they actually took in. So now you're, you're in that position where you cannot just wait to see what happens. A decision has to be made. Do we go to the hospital? Do we call poison control? Is this going to incite CPS now to inviting more scrutiny on what's going on inside of our household? Do I need to stand and just trust that God is going to take care of the situation? Which one is it? Well, being that position requires you to have to know exactly what God's will is and, and that, that finite amount of time that you have to step up and make the decision. And Psalm 4 is applicable to that kind of situation. And, and what's um, deceptive about those kind of situations is when you have resources, that tends to make the decision for you instead of you going to Psalm 4, instead of you seeking the Lord. Oh, well, we have insurance. It's no big deal. Let's just go. And we fell to that many, many times over the course of raising our children. Oh, they have a fever? Bring them to the doctor. No big deal. Instead of first working through what the Lord wanted for their life. For that to work right, could fear be causing you to not call the hospital? Yes. Could fear be causing you to call the hospital? Yes. That stuff already has to be eliminated. That's not a part of this decision. The question is... Which one do you want, Lord? And I have to make that decision right now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, an example in our house is, you know, that we have had several families, several different people live with us. Really? Uh, just a few. Um, and it, it gets down to the wire where you, you, we have to make a decision about something that's going to take place in 24 hours. We have two, two dif different individuals that need to know within 24 hours. And you're having to go before the Lord and go through Psalm 4 to make sure that you're hearing exactly what you need to be doing. Yeah, think, think about it as the Hewitts and um, the Rosales. Both loved disciples. 
both were invested in their future in every possible way. Only one room. Both have to make a decision in 24 hours or they lose their other housing option. This is not about Nabal. This is not about uh, God being like a groom and the church responding like a bride. It's not about a flow of shalom. That's not what's happening. We just want the right decision. And Psalm 25 is wonderful, but we don't, it's, it's not like there's two weeks to contemplate whether something else is, is working in, in our disagreement because she says clearly it's the Rosales. I say clearly it's the Hewitts. And we can't both be right and we might be missing something. Psalm 4 is perfect for that kind of scenario. I, another one that comes up all of the time for me, I, I, was, I was in another country when the COVID thing broke out. One church is telling me to do one thing. Another church is telling me to do another. It's clear that I have to cross a border. It is not clear which border I should cross, and there's four neighboring countries. And the, the implications are profound. If, if, I, if it had been one of those countries, I would still be there right now. But we couldn't know that. It's a Psalm 4 process, okay? And sometimes it's Psalm 25 followed immediately by Psalm 4. But I think what would be best is if we work through the Psalm 4 process a little bit with you to show you what we mean by that. Is that all right? Okay, we're going to start in Psalm 4. There are eight steps. You can think of it as eight steps to a new beginning if you want. You can think of it, um, you can think of it as getting off of an ark into a whole new life of decisions. You, you can think of it in any way that, that you want. But there's eight verses, and each one of them has profound implications. Do you all want to go through that? Okay, Psalm 4 in verse 1. Answer me when I call to you. My righteous God, give me relief from my distress. I have mercy and, and have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Do you notice how he's already in distress? Okay. The urgency of the situation is already there. This is not a huge future event. This is a, this is a now kind of thing. And I want to warn you, when we're going through this, when you're young in marriage, every fight feels like now, urgent, some for nuclear. That's all this is. The longer you've been married, the more you have progressed towards God's throne, you start to figure out that many, many things you thought were Psalm 4 issues actually aren't. And the fact that you're still alive here proves it. Oh, okay. But in a situation where I've got 24 hours and it's going to affect a home, it's going to affect a life, it's going to affect a child's future, and a decision has to be made, step number one is both of you pray right there show trust that God will hear you and that he will give you a resolution. Get out of the mindset that says, I don't have time to make this decision and into the mindset that says, I will call on him and he will answer. We can trust that. Verse two says, how long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? This is such an important step after you begin to cry out to the Lord and actually trust that he'll give you an answer. Let's be honest. Most of us have, a trouble, have trouble crying out to the Lord because we're really just not sure that he's going to answer us in this moment. Yeah. But see, Psalm 4 helps you to engage with that. No, I know that the Lord is going to help me. And then you're able to verbalize out loud. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? 
See, in this step, in verse 2, it teaches us to verbalize out loud what you're actually feeling conflicted about. You actually verbalize it so that you can hear, so that you're offering it to the Lord, and you're able to then address it properly as you're speaking it out loud, what your concerns and what you're conflicted about. Have you ever been uh, in a discussion about God's will with your spouse, and you thought that you were fighting about the ultimate goal and, and realized, no, that was never in question. All we were talking about were the steps. When you're praying and you start to verbalize out loud what your concerns are, You'd be shocked how many times you realize it's not a real concern. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you'll, be, you'll be shocked how many times you realize, oh, I had no idea, but that is attached to a navel trait. Yeah. You, yeah. You're self-correcting by having to say it out loud. Yes. So you, you realize that you're in mortal combat with your spouse, and it was never that we weren't going to have the meeting. All, all we were debating is what kind of food was going to be served, and you didn't know that that's really what the source of the conflict was. So many times, too, in my life, I can say, that's just fear. I'm addressing right here when I'm saying this. I'm fearful about something that's not going to happen. And it allows you to go right back to that week one and start killing that flesh so that you can have movement and have something produced. Verse 3 says, Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Look, when do you see this verse? You're understanding that you must refuse to make any movement or action that doesn't come from the throne. And the reason is because you are set apart for him. We see here that it's a matter of knowing the Lord's character, knowing his works, knowing his reputation. And in that moment of needing to make an immediate, a finite decision that has great implications and wanting to accomplish his will, it's like, wait a minute. God, you set us apart. You've ordained us to do your works. And there is a trust-grounded obedience that is filled in that understanding of, You're, you hear me when I call you. It's not like I'm, I'm offering up what's going on inside of my heart and mind when I'm verbalizing this, and you're not going to listen. You do listen because you have set me and my wife apart to accomplish our family banner, and you're absolutely going to do it. Think about what this means between a husband and wife to imagine that Rick and Susan are sitting and they're praying about this subject right now. And they know that they're going to go do God's will, but they have two very different ideas about what that looks like. One thinks we're going to go in a year. The other thinks we have to go this week, like the missions example. Mm -hmm. But they hear each other verbalizing what they're concerned about. And they hear each other speaking to the throne of God saying, we will not do anything until you have shown us. What's happening in your heart as you hear your spouse say that? Mm -hmm. You're like, okay, I'm not just going to be leveraged into this. God is going to make this decision. This is not just, you must follow me. This is not, she will never follow me. This is a way to submit it to the Lord on the spot and believe he will give you the solution so that you can both trust in the solution that he gives even if it's a wrong solution friends it's the right way to make it and he will teach you as you move forward in marriage let's do verse four tremble and do not sin when you are on your bed search your heart and be silent i love this because it's you reflect on the, uh, the word you determine if your emotions are being derived uh, from that or just from somewhere else 
Um, the thing that I have, you know, probably repeated a, a thousand times is your emotions were meant to serve you, not to enslave you. And so it's so important to base that off of the word. With fear and trembling, you're both now considering that you may have a right goal and not know how to get there. And you know that Jesus was moved by compassion to heal. That emotion served him. But Jesus never allowed compassion to cause him to get out of God's will. And with humility, you're examining the word, thinking through the process of it's possible that I walked in with some wrong framework. And this gives him the chance to show you both what his framework is. Amen. I love the word tremble there because the more you learn about God's will, the more you find out that you often don't know God's will. And these kind of conflicts come from being super confident that you know what should or shouldn't be done and scared that your spouse doesn't know. Mm. Now you're both admitting that you might not know and waiting for the Lord to show you. And it's going to come. And it's going to happen quickly because the decision is a short-term uh, decision with lasting implications. Verse 5 says, Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. In the moment... Sacrifice by doing what you believe he's directing you. So that may be moments of whether you, uh, whether you have action that the Lord is asking you to do, or it may be inaction. Say something or don't say something. Go act and do or, or not. Be self-disciplined in that moment, but depending on the Lord in those moments. Yeah, this is the actual action of what's taking place. You're going to make a right sacrifice. You've prayed. You've gotten in the right alignment. You've refused to, to move until the Lord is speaking. You've reflected in your own heart. And now you've got to make the right sacrifice. You've got to do something. The time is upon you, and you have to make the right kind of a sacrifice, whether that means to take your child to the doctor or not. Now is the decision, and you make that decision. And at this point, if you're still at an impasse, then you have to be reminded of week three. You have to be reminded that there is a flow of shalom and ultimately, hey, look, we're still here. I'm going to take the decision. I'm going to make it because I'm the husband, because I, we've, we've, we've eliminated the Nabal. We are walking rightly, and I'm trying to initiate, and you're following, and we're walking in shalom, and now it's just time for the decision to be made. Mm. We're going to make the decision, and we're going to have the right sacrifice. In other words, we're going to be doing it in the right way. We're going to go ahead and submit to God's plan here and step forward and actually do something. Ladies, would you raise your hand if it would be easier for you to follow your husband if you worked through that process and heard him say these things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, look around the room, folks. Okay, we don't actually have a shalom issue before this. What is actually happening is you are involving your easer in the terrifying prospect of you may not know what to do, but you are trusting that the Lord has just shown you. Yeah. Ideally, you both come to the same answer right here. But if you don't, if you don't, and he has heard you, and you have both uh, had the opportunity to lay it before the Lord, this is the very reason that God put one spouse as the final decision maker. And no matter what happens after this point, you have the opportunity to learn from it in the future. You have the opportunity to be equally invested Amen. in it. The truth is, is at this moment, very often, neither of us are sure. We've now considered this enough. 
that we think that the Lord is telling us something, but we now know that the right thing to do is entrust ourselves to him and take a step of faith. Amen. And that, that is incredibly useful, especially when there's a timeline involved. That timeline puts pressure on you to make a decision quickly. One of the problems, not problems, one of the shortcomings of Psalm 25 is you can drag that on indefinitely. Well, go back and submit your emotions to the Lord. Go back and submit. Yeah, yeah, we have, and there has to be a decision. Yes. This forces a decision, and it forces a decision within the time frame that it has to be made. And right or wrong, that de decision ultimately falls on the husband, but he has now enlisted his wife in every way. And in most cases, what you'll find is God brings you into agreement in that decision. And if not, you'll be able to look into the rearview mirror and go, next time I'm in that decision, I've noticed that my wife has keen insight into this. Or next time I'm in that position, I'll notice my husband's been right nine times before. And, and you get better and better at making these decisions. But not making one and staying at an impasse is a huge opportunity for the devil. Not to mention if your kid may have just drank that Robitussin. Your inability to function as a God-ordained unit with a structure could kill your kid. Yeah. Verse 6 says, Many, Lord, are asking, Who will bring us prosperity? Or who can show us anything good? Let the light of your face shine on us. Look, now that you've made that right sacrifice, that right decision, it is your responsibility to bring your thoughts under the control of Christ, and remove that despair. The despair that says, who can show us anything good? That despair of, oh no, I think I just made the wrong decision. No, 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 no. no. Right or wrong, you have made the decision in the right way. And that sets up for God to be able to show you exactly where his favor lies. Yeah, And in this situation, we have to avoid letting the words always and never even enter our minds. Well, you always do this. You never listen to me. We always, you can't, you can't do that. That's leaning on despair again. That's slipping right back into it. And we're putting aside those thoughts. Instead, we're trusting that the Lord has led us to the right decision because we've done this process, already removing all of the yucky stuff from week one, week two, week three. We're doing this process right. The Lord's brought us to this decision, and we're going to stick with it. Always and never is expressing a profound disregard for the fact that God may have just led you. <laughs> yeah. It's saying yeah. he's never led us. He's not going to lead us now. And I, I can't follow you and you won't follow me. It's faithlessness. Yeah. But the truth is, is you can predict a demonic attack anytime you make a decision, no matter what you do. Uh, no matter what I do, whatever country we pick to leave to, because you have to leave the one that you're in. The devil's going to tell you it was the wrong one. Yeah. Okay, he's going to try to play on that. What you're standing on is we made the decision in the right way, and our God will stand. He'll help us. Yeah. And uh, that kind of unity is powerful. And that's, that's the kind of resolution we are uh, hoping to help lead you into. Amen. I can share from our personal testimony. I've gained more wisdom making a decision in the right way than never just making no decision at all. That by stepping or walking through these steps and, and being able to 
make decisions in the right way, God's always shown me, in, in the end, exactly what the right, right thing to do was. Well, verse 7 continues. Fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. Now, this is a matter of replacing that despair with joy. Because now that despair is gone, command yourself to be joyful. Command yourself to be happy, knowing that you are now in shalom. Verse 8. In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. When you get to the end of this process, a decision's been made, okay? The singular most important thing that you can do is both lie down in peace about it. The decision was made in the right way. You sit in the shalom of God. Could it be the wrong decision? Might you not have heard? Of, of course. But what benefit is there in digging up and doubt the seed that you just sowed in faith? The truth is, is you are entrusting yourself to God who heard you from the first verse. If you're in harmony with each other, if you're in harmony with God, it doesn't really matter what the outcome is. He works in all things for the good of those that love him and are called, in, are called according to his purpose. This allows you in the future to evaluate the efficacy of your decision. But it's important at this point that you don't go to bed tossing and turning, digging up the decision that you made in faith. Stand in faith on the decision that you made and the Lord will continue to steer you no matter what happens. You'll continue to grow. You'll continue. What you just did is find eight clear steps to make any decision that is time sensitive. Now, if it's not time sensitive, you can work through things for weeks and that's okay. It, it's, not, it, it's not harmful to you. But if you fall into a pattern of unable to make a decision, you probably have a navel trait at work somewhere in there where you are just faithless and fearful, okay? Yeah. I believe that God will speak to us. Amen. I believe his track record is, is bigger than my inadequacies. I believe that he'll speak to me through my wife, through my ministry partners. I believe that he will speak to me. And yet, we many times have heard from God slightly differently. And not every time were all of us right. A decision still has to be made. This is the right way to make those decisions. Would you like to do a group exercise? Come on, in our last few minutes here, we want to explain to you your group exercise. Okay, first, discuss with your spouse a time when you thought the situation was life-ending, but you are still here. Join hands and thank God for his mercy. <laughs> Can anybody already start to relate to that? Yes. You were sure that this was going to be the end of all things, and, and yet here you are. Then, after you get to do that for just a few minutes, come up and get some chocolate. And after returning to your seat, recite Exodus 15, 25 to each other, committing to insert wood into any future situation that could be bitter so that it would become sweet. And by wood, of course, we mean God's righteous method of making decisions. Which will become clear after you read Exodus 15, 25. That's right. Take a few minutes.
All right, husbands, have you initiated? Wives, have you reciprocated? Amen. I can't tell you how happy it makes us as pastors to see some of you kissing. Um, taste and see that the Lord is good. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. Yeah. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. What you've just learned in Psalm 25, what you've just learned in Psalm 4, is how to take refuge in the Lord when you don't know what to do and trust that he is showing you and has given you the right structure, the right design, the right method to make every decision that you will ever have to make. And it is a faith walk. But man, are you blessed when you walk in that faith. He is good. Your spouse is good. Your marriage is good. Now, we recognize that even in our Psalm 4 situations, I think Pastor Wade told you he got a, a job offer on a Friday. It's a Psalm 4 situation. He has to give him an answer by Monday. And that decision does not have to be made Friday. Uh, it, it, it does not. But the process should be started Friday. Sometimes in marriage, you'll have to table an issue. Uh, that doesn't mean table because you're carnal and can't talk. Go back to week one if that's the case. It means table because the truth is neither one of you have the faith that you have heard from God, and it is the decision. Okay? Now, you, you can only do that so long because the decision still has to be made. And in a Psalm 4 scenario, there's a clock on it. But he didn't have to do it Friday. They could table the issue for 24 hours to make sure there it's an abundance of caution to make sure that we've arrived at the right decision. Now, if there aren't 24 hours, maybe there's four hours, you might table the issue for an hour. At some point though, husband, it's incumbent upon you to grow some faith and make a decision. It, it is. And you're a fool if you do that without having heard your wife. And by here, I don't mean your auditory senses. I mean, heard in every way down in your soul what she's saying wife if he has heard you and a decision has to be made be glad that you have a husband and that decision no matter how much it affects you he's accountable for and he's doing his best 
But where you have another day or another hour and you just genuinely do not yet have clarity, here is how you table an issue. You ready for this? You start off by affirming each other's Abigail traits. And I, I'm just going to give you a hint of some amazing ways to do it because we're good at this. You are so sexy. I love the peacemaking speech that comes out of you. You are a worshiper of God. That is appealing to my soul. You are a spiritual songbird that lights up our house. Your hard work, it has grabbed hold of my desire for you. I can hardly contain myself. I love how sexy you are when you're tenacious and how passionate you are when you're driven and how righteous discernment comes from you. I love how caring and loving and merciful you are. Our outlook is already getting better. Then you move to your love language. I said, but it's lengthy. I know some of you need to make it more lengthy. The idea here is no decision we have to make is bringing distance between us. We are renewing our commitment and covenant that the Lord is blessing. We're affirming it in every way. And then step three says physical contact. That's because I didn't type the slide. <laughs> Let me tell you, it means intercourse. And I do not mean the town in Pennsylvania. <laughs> this should be happening every day anyway. Every day, anyway. If, if, if that's just not physically possible, then whatever physical contact affirms your marriage. But remember, your marriage started at the point of intercourse. What you're working to do is make sure there is no physical, no spiritual, no distance of any kind between the two of you because you have an important decision to make and you're going to do it united then after physical contact and by that I mean intercourse you get on your knees and pray and you set a time the most next reasonable time before the final decision has to be made and you finish that prayer with we know God will give us the answer You'll be shocked the way heaven moves when you have renewed your covenant in that way. When Nabal's not a part of this, when the order and function of your home is right, God will bless that scenario. And when you come together the next time to make your final decision, you work right back through Psalm 4. And this time, husband, there is no cowardly exit plan. You make the decision because you're a man who is led by God and it is what you were put on this earth to do. And wife, you admire how difficult that process is and a decision had to be made and you support it wholeheartedly. And in the days, weeks, months, years to come, you'll look back on them and see your decisions get better and better and better. Now... Pastor Wade is going to go over some homework with you. 
I just want to put a personal plug in. Week five, week five, it's not carnal. Week five is not base. Week five is solely, fully, scripturally what marriage is actually about. And just like week one, two, and three led to week four, these four weeks build into week five. So if you've been sitting here the whole time thinking, yeah, pastor, I love you, but the thing is, is we got some intimacy issues, and um, I wish you'd just talk about that. Week one flows into week two. Week two flows into week three. Week three flows into week four, and week four flows into week five. A couple that is united in their decision-making process is going to have incredible sex. God will bless your sex life. He does bless sex lives. He, he will anoint you for it. He will give you skill, ability, knowledge, and there is nothing. If Samson can be moved by God, if God's spirit can come on Samson to pick up a jawbone and kill men, I promise he can anoint you to slay it in the bedroom. Somebody say, thank you, Pastor. <laughs> Somebody say, thank you, Lord. Lord. Look, here's your homework for next week to get ready for an incredible and a final session of the Maximizing Marriages. You're going to watch the sermon entitled Her Ministry Cycle from the marriage teachings that began uh, in our sermons in September of 2018. You're going to read through the book of Song of Songs. If you're like me from the olden days, it was the Song of Solomon. Uh, out of all the songs that he wrote, 1,005, I think, this was the song of all the songs that he wrote. So you're going to read through that, and you're going to continue to work on your love languages and continue to affirm each other with Abigail traits to each other. Come on, stand to your feet. This week, that sermon is, is actually something we want you to listen to. It's, it's not like the others where we say we normally assign this homework, but uh, this week we want you to listen to that sermon. Grab your spouse. Whatever you mean, whatever. I, thank you. <laughs> Mighty God, we love you so much. Lord, we thank you for what you are imparting into the marriages of LCM. We thank you, Lord, for this teaching, Lord, that you have given since the beginning of the church, but, Lord, you're reviving it in our day. Lord, you're ingraining it in our day. Lord, you're causing the revelation to go deeper into our hearts. Lord, that you would bless these families. Lord, that true conflict resolution, that proper conflict resolution would be, uh, Lord, a, a process that we understand, Lord. Not just dealing with Nabal. Lord, not just dealing with husbands leading and wives following. Not just with shalom issues, but, Lord, actually accomplishing your will here on this earth, Lord. Teach us how to accomplish your will. Lord, continue to speak to us. Be with us, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.